Hello and welcome to Deep North, the official podcast of Iceland Review. Today we'll be sitting down and listening to staff writer Alina Maurer read her article in pursuit of Tarmigan. And afterwards we'll be discussing the article. It's 6 a.m. and the obsidian darkness lingers outside my windshield. I arrive in the Kaursnes neighborhood of Kopavogur, park my car and hop into Christian Andre Einarsson's black chimney. The hunter greets me with a boyish smirk, ready for today's adventure. He's wearing a camouflage cap on his graying auburn hair. Until this day, I've never gone hunting, nor seen a real gun in my life. All that is about to change. We drive northeast towards Thingvetlir National Park. My knowledge of the feathery creature we are stalking today is quite limited, and I suddenly wonder if I made a mistake by wearing bright colors. Christian dispels my worries, explaining that rock ptarmigans, or rjupur in Icelandic, don't care about camouflage, at least when it's not their own, and that my flashy attire could actually save us from a rather unfortunate fate, becoming the hunted instead of the hunter. The ptarmigan hunting season just started a week ago, on October 20th. While we drive the bumpy road towards Uxarikir, north of Thingvetlir, Christian tells me about his last hunt earlier this week, where he went onward to the Red Dead, or in Icelandic, Frami Röðan Röðan. It's a phrase that means he was not backing down, continuing as long as possible. I had to chase the bird for so long. It would run on the hillside, I would get into position, and then it would fly away again. They usually don't act like that in the snow. They're more confident when they're camouflaged. Finally, somebody's talking about camouflage, the only thing I know about hunting. Ironically, the white coat the ptarmigans have molted into for the long Icelandic winter is entirely useless at the moment, as snow hasn't arrived in the lowlands yet. I think we'll probably see one bird, hopefully, but I've come here without seeing any. I don't want to jinx it or get your hopes up too much. The hunter carefully says. We arrive at a small parking lot in the middle of nowhere, next to an emergency shelter. It's dawn. We park alongside a truck. Another hunter has already started the pursuit. Things of the past. As we step through the highland landscapes, we leave behind deep footprints in the soft, bright green moss. I wonder how long it takes until our presence becomes invisible again. The sky above us slowly starts to burst with orange and pink hues and the frosty blue night sky whispers its goodbye. Christian carries the shotgun on his right shoulder. It's a family heirloom. The hunt is what connects me to my father's roots back in East Iceland, he explains. Christian recalls his first ever ptarmigan hunt. I went with my father and his brother. I was around 13 years old. We went to the same spot we're going to today. And my father got a bird, if I remember correctly. The first bird I ever shot was an oak glacier, the former glacier. Christian's father, Einar, died in 2016, just two years after the Glacier Oak. Apart from being a family tradition for Christian, ptarmigan hunting is also deeply ingrained in Icelandic culture, including the country's biggest holiday. There are people like my family that just can't imagine Christmas without ptarmigan. The smell and the taste are simply a part of Christmas for a lot of people. Auke Arman Jonsson from the Icelandic Hunting Association Skortvis elucidates. This is cultural heritage. Any politician who's ever tried to limit ptarmigan hunting was not in politics for very long. It's not the hunters alone, because we have about 5,000 hunters, but they all have families. 
So according to surveys, about 10% of the nation eats ptarmigan on Christmas. In Christian's family, having ptarmigan as a Christmas dish is a long-standing tradition, reaching further back than just his father's generation. Traditionally, the hunted ptarmigans are hung outside for a couple of days before further preparation, which gives them a unique taste. The first written record of this tradition is from 1760, in the cookbook Piper i Ötlum Mat, Pepper in All Food, by Eckert Olafsson. The first ptarmigan recipe specifically for Christmas is from 1897, in the historic cookbook Kvennafreiderin, The Housewife's Guide. In the past, it was more customary to prepare lamb or meat soup on Christmas, while ptarmigan was eaten in households that couldn't afford to slaughter one of their animals. Back then, ptarmigans were a means of survival. We've been hunting ptarmigan for a very long time, but usually it was the poor man's dinner, Auke remarks. Auke explains that ptarmigan was also hunted for export, as while across Iceland, bartering was the norm. But Danish and Norwegian ships would pay cash for the birds. In the early 19th century, the ptarmigans inhabiting Iceland's heaths in Highland numbered in the millions. During the peaks of their population cycles, they were exported to Europe in numbers reaching up to 300,000 birds. In 2003, selling ptarmigan became illegal in Iceland. And until today, it can only be hunted for personal consumption. The lucrative meat market was closed and the hunting numbers declined dramatically. Symbiosis of two species. While I wait inside the entrance of the Icelandic Institute of Natural History to meet Olavur Nielsen, a biologist and ornithologist by training, I see two hunters waiting as well, holding brown paper bags. Olavur opens the door and excitedly rushes to accept the precious cargo. Unfaced, he pulls out a white wing flecked heavily with blood. The ornithologist explains that about 10% of ptarmigan hunters send in the wings of their prey, so scientists like him can determine the age of the birds. We don't do it for fun. We collect this data to estimate the population size and demographics. Olavur and his team are also counting live ptarmigans in the spring, the so-called breeding population. After the chicks hatch in June, another census is conducted. All three datasets are part of a statistical model which estimates the population size, demographics and mortality rates of the birds. The rock ptarmigan population in Iceland fluctuates between years, depending on different environmental factors. The cycles are not completely regular, but since the turn of the century, the population has peaked approximately every five years, Olavur elucidates. The last peak occurred in 2018 with close to 1 million rock ptarmigans in the country. Apart from the optional wing deliveries, all ptarmigan hunters have to turn in a report to the environmental agency at the end of each season, in which they declare the details of their expeditions. The majorities of the hunters are honest people who want to do this the right way, Olavur explains. We also have another way of estimating the total harvest that is totally independent from the hunting report. It's a survey that estimates total ptarmigan consumption. Fortunately, there's a pretty good harmony between what the hunters say they caught and what's estimated as eaten. Besides humans, rock ptarmigans have many wild predators, such as the introduced North American mink, the Arctic fox, and predatory birds. 
The harsh Icelandic winter is also a major threat. The only specialized predator is the gear falcon, Oliver tells me. Their life is centered on the ptarmigan. If the ptarmigan were to go extinct, then the gear falcon would too. Usually, the gear falcon population peaks shortly after the ptarmigan population, though Olavur observes that both peaks are getting lower. We see a long-term decline in both the ptarmigan and the gear falcon numbers. Olavur and other scientists at the Icelandic Institute of Natural History supply the Environment Agency of Iceland with their data which then uses it to set hunting regulations each year. But there are also two other parties sitting at the negotiating table, the Icelandic Hunting Association and their counterpart, BirdLife Iceland. There are no explicit limitations on the ptarmigan hunt, such as a bag limit. The hunt is instead restricted via the length of the hunting period. So when the ptarmigan population is decreasing, the hunting period is shortened correspondingly. This year, a new management model was introduced to increase the sustainability on the ptarmigan hunt. Over the years, we have been experimenting with different systems. The system we've been using since 2005 has now been abandoned, and we have been using a new population model, Oliver says. According to that model, the Icelandic rock ptarmigan population can withstand 25 hunting days during the current season without falling below the average population size. Auke Arman Jonsson openly disagrees with using the length of the season to manage the ptarmigan hunt. The number of allowed hunting days doesn't matter, because each hunter only ever goes for three or four days. They go over one weekend to get their ptarmigan for Christmas dinner. So it doesn't really matter if the season is 30 days or 35 days. According to Auke, there are about 4,000 to 5,000 hunters in Iceland who hunt approximately 10 ptarmigans each. Within the last 10 years, hunting numbers have been quite stable, ranging between 27,000 and 45,000, and hardly ever exceeding 50,000 ptarmigans per season. Auke would still appreciate a longer hunting period, simply for practical reasons. In the future, even if we have 1 million birds and we still hunt 50,000 of them, we want 45 days to do it, so we can pick the best weekend. I want to go when there's snow and the weather is nice. Olavur explains the battle of interest diplomatically. Auke is the chairman of the Icelandic Hunting Association, and they want to have as many days as possible. But then the other interest group is BirdLife Iceland. If you made the goals more liberal, then you would get more days. But if you make them more restricted, you get fewer days. So it's kind of like a talk of war. Speaking of war, the three parties involved seem to not only disagree on the restrictions of the hunt, but also their methodological approach, going as far as accusing the other party of not adhering to scientific principles. It was quite surprising to hear that rock ptarmigans could provoke such a row. While the views of all board members highly differ, they all agree on their goal to ensure the rock ptarmigans' long-term survival in Iceland. We care about the ptarmigan. Having a lot of ptarmigans is also our goal, so we can hunt, Aukis stresses. So when I started, I went to BirdLife Iceland and I said, look, we may not agree on hunting ptarmigans or not, but we can agree that climate change is a threat. We can agree that the loss of biodiversity is a threat for the ptarmigan. No peaks for the ptarmigan. 
the population cycles for the ptarmigans differ widely between the six hunting regions in Iceland. The populations in different parts of Iceland are slightly out of phase. Here in the west, it's close to peak numbers this summer, Ulevud explains. Within the last two years, the ptarmigan reproduction in the northeast of Iceland has been quite grim. Breeding success is very important regarding the size of the huntable population, and bad breeding seasons have been occurring more and more frequently. The scientist continues. During the open season, approximately 80% of the birds are juveniles. Some years we've had breeding failures, so that has great consequences for the huntable population. This spring, we had quite many ptarmigans up in the northeast, and normally the autumn population would have been between 500,000 and 600,000 birds, but in reality it was about 300,000 birds. The rock ptarmigan chicks are sensitive to the elements. When harsh weather and heavy rain hit the region over the summer, many of them died. We've monitored the reproduction up in the northeast since 1964. And we've had, if I remember correctly, five incidents of breeding failure during this period. And three of them were within the last four years. That's a major catastrophe for the rock ptarmigan. The rock ptarmigan population has been on a steady decline since its glory days in the early 20th century. Now the autumn population is probably around 300,000 birds, Oliver says. I'm talking about Iceland as a whole. We don't see the big peaks anymore, and the decrease started decades ago. We have to go back at least 70 years for the last big peak. There have been major changes in the environment here in Iceland since then. A ghost from the past. The rock ptarmigan came to Iceland from Greenland at the end of the Pleistocene, commonly referred to as the Ice Age, whatever explains to me. Its close relative, the willow ptarmigan, also inhabits northern regions, but has never made its way to Greenland, hence also didn't land in Iceland. Climate change is heavily affecting Arctic species, drastically altering their habitats all around the globe. The birds are adapted to the cold weather, so they change plumage and even develop their own set of feathery snowshoes for the winter. They expect snow in the hills in October, and they turn completely white. Now, if you look at Mount Isia, there's no snow below 800 meters. So life becomes hard for them, both hiding from hunters, but also from other predators like the gear falcon. Auke puts forth a dire prediction. In 50 years, there will be no ptarmigans in Iceland. Apart from climate change, Olavur also criticizes the Icelandic Forestry Service's efforts to reforest wide parts of the landscape. While the lowlands used to be covered in birch forests before Iceland's first settlers arrived around 870 AD, surviving on the Barren Island has called for rigorous deforestation, and the grazing of livestock prevented its resurgence. This is what ecologists call cultural landscapes. This open landscape that they created, it's tundra-like. It's this habitat that's so valuable for the rock ptarmigan. According to the ornithologist, continued afforestation would destroy the breeding habitats of the ptarmigan. I think the future for the rock ptarmigan is quite bleak. Because of those changes, we will end up with a ptarmigan population like they have in Scotland or the Alps, a very small population living in marginal areas. This future issue unites all members of the board. Climate change creates a highly hostile environment for the Icelandic rock ptarmigan, making life for this bird even tougher than it already is. 
The absence of ptarmigans would not only eliminate ptarmigan hunting as a part of Icelandic culture and tradition, but it would also cause a chain reaction that further minimizes biodiversity, as the gear falcon can't survive without the rock ptarmigan. Stalking in solitude. Back in Thingvellir, Christian crosses a fence on our path. The hunter tells me that he's quite glad we're hunting on a weekday. On the weekend, he says, the Skjaldbreiður area becomes a war zone. You hear bangs every 10 minutes. That's why I never go there. I don't want to be fighting all the people just to find some birds, he laughs. For many hunters, a crucial part of the hunting process is the solitude. It's just an enjoyable experience, especially when you're alone. You can think, it's almost cleansing in a way. It's not to quell some primal bloodthirsty urge or anything like that. Christian pauses and sighs. But I also admit sometimes, I feel bad for the animal. But I think that's natural. It's a living thing. You have to show respect for the ptarmigan. As we cross some small frozen puddles, the last remnants of the sunrise reflect the barren landscape onto their crisp surface. After hiking about 10 kilometers through the wilderness, we still haven't seen a single living creature apart from ourselves. Suddenly, some tiny snow buntings rise above our heads, chittering as if they're mocking our failed attempt. After stumbling upon a white feather indicating the nightly resting place of a rock ptarmigan, we decide to return back from our stalking adventure. Today is no Fram i Rødan day. Christian stores his shotgun in the car, and we return to the civilized reality of Reykjavik. I look up the bright blue winter sky, and a lone bird passes by. It seems to be a gear falcon flying in the direction where we just returned from. Maybe it will have more luck on his hunt, as long as there's still rock ptarmigans left. Well, thank you for that, Alina. You're welcome. Um, maybe just to begin with, uh, why did you decide to write this article in particular? Um, it's a good question. I was thinking, obviously, for topics to write about, and I remembered that uh, uh, actually the uncle of my boyfriend, he's the hunter that I wrote about, and he always talked about it when we met up with the whole family and I've also seen him right before Christmas just like coming out of the shed just blood speckled um, and it always kind of intrigued me I've never been interested in hunting like in Germany for example deer hunting I've never been interested in the topic at all but I don't know something he's just so passionate about it so I think he just kind of caught me with that and uh, that just raised my interest. So I always thought it would be interesting to tag along. Um, so yeah, that was the perfect opportunity then to to make something out of it. Great, and uh, have you tried Tarmigan yourself? I have, uh, not this Christmas because I, I was in Germany, but um, I think it was Christmas of 2020. Yes, um, and I actually did not like it <laughs> at all. <laughs> did not like it? No, I, th I thought it was way too gamey. Um, but I was surprised how dark the meat is. It's like kind of dark red. Um, and I mean, it didn't taste bad, but it's just not my kind of thing. Do you have it usually for Christmas or? Um, no, but there was a maybe a two, three 
year period um, when we we did have it. Uh, it was a friend of the family's who hunted, and um, yeah, it was maybe a two or three period in which he uh, he gave us a few birds, and uh, I I actually really liked it. But I think it has a lot to do with sort of the the gravy or the sauce that is served with it. So I believe that we had some old recipe from my grandmother. And uh, yeah, I, I think probably the gravy was 90% of the experience. Yeah, <laughs> it usually tends to be the case. Yeah. It's the sauce that makes the dish. Exactly. Um, yeah, but have you have you gone on a hunt or? No, I've never been, not a big hunter myself. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting to tag along um, vicariously through your piece. <laughs> And uh, yeah, maybe just uh, you describe the taste as gamey. Mm -hmm. Would you compare it to anything else that you've eaten? Um, I mean, it is kind of bird chicken-like. I guess the consistency of the meat, um, a bit herby. I'm not sure because actually um, they take, I think they cook, I mean, depends how you cook the bird. Uh, I think each family sometimes has their own tradition. Um, but most traditionally it's boiled. So they actually take out from the stomach, like the last things that the bird ate, it's just kind of like, I don't know, maybe Arctic time, just some kind of grass, herbs that can be found in, in the tundra-like landscapes where they, where you can hunt them. Um, and they boil it or they put it also in the sauce. I think the, the whole stomach. Right. So yeah. may, maybe that also gives a kind of taste, speci special herby taste to to the bird in the sauce, and I like that. I thought it was uh, pretty unique, and I've never tasted anything like it before. Um, yeah, yeah. But like, uh, I mean, I know it also depends how long you have it hanging outside. Um, I think some people they used to have it hanging for like up to fifteen days or something. Yeah, but I think Christian, he normally leaves it outside for three, four days, but he lives close to the to the um, coastline. So he actually needs to wrap it up in aluminum foil <laughs> because otherwise the seagulls come and they just uh, thank him for the free meal. Exactly. Um, yeah, and uh, how long um, was your hunt with Christian on the hike itself? Um, we left, I think we left around seven, a little bit before seven. And then we, I think uh, in total, it was not too long, maybe until three or four. I mean, it also got dark pretty soon. Um, but we realized quite fast that today was no lucky day. Um, and there were also not really many hunters around, just one other guy. And we saw him actually when we left again, and he also did not have any, a single bird. So, um, yeah, like sometimes uh, Christian said, though, that he just continues and continues, even again when it gets already kind of dark. Um, but I was also quite glad then that we didn't stay that long because the, the terrain is very rocky and it's just, you're just basically hiking over just rockland and it's very easy to just twist your ankle <laughs> and break something um yeah well yeah judging by the pictures um it's a very beautiful landscape and i imagine that that must be a big part of the experience like uh 
Christian mentioned that you know it's it's a lot about solitude and a kind of communion with nature. So was that your experience as well? He he went first, and then it was me and Gole, the photographer, was a little bit in the back. Um, so we didn't really talk that much because we were just concentrated on walking and, and spying for the bird. Uh, so you had a lot of time to think. And I also thought it's maybe nice to kind of have a purpose to not just go on a walk, but you have a purpose of, I mean, then shooting the bird, I guess, and just using the time while you're hiking to reflect and just, I don't know, it just uh, it's very calming. Um, we also stumbled upon a waterfall that was just suddenly there in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, I, it, it kind of inspired me to just maybe the summer venture out and just not go hunting, <laughs> but uh, just maybe hike uh, in, in places that I've not hiked before that are just, you know, you just find uh, beautiful and strange things just in the middle of nowhere and it's just inspiring. Yeah, great. And um, I'm curious, is there any one fact or anything in particular that you learned that has stayed with you? What, what was like the, the most astounding fact that you discovered while researching and writing the article? Um, I mean, one kind of beautiful fact that I um, found out just through talking to Christian was about his relationship to his father. And this was something that uh, was basically their hobby together. And they spent a lot of time also during his childhood just uh, hunting ptarmigan. So I thought that was just a beautiful um, kind of glue that held them together in their relationship. Um, but also just how I thought the topic would be more polarizing, um, but I didn't really find any critique, at least at least in Iceland or just online. And, and I joined some uh, hunting Facebook groups because I was curious if people would actually, you know, uh, not follow the rules and maybe still um, sell termigans online, but I have not seen anything. Um, but I mean, honestly, the beef between the board members, uh, BirdLife Iceland and Skutvis, and then um, Olavur and his team, was a bit surprising that they're fighting so much, just which uh, population model they should. Um, consider in the future and what's the best way to go and I don't know I didn't really expect that <laughs> and it was a bit uh, at times a lot to to take in and, and just keep like a clear mind on okay that's their model and he wants this and they want that and that just uh, yeah that was very surprising it's yeah. such a tiny bird it's just creating uh, a big uh, clash on that board at least yeah and it is um, one thing that stood out to me especially was uh, Oliver, the biologist and ornithologist, predicting that rock ptarmigan may completely disappear from Iceland in 50 years, which is a really quite bleak prognostication. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned in the article, these birds, they face a lot of challenges, um, maybe most notably owing to climate change. I mean, like when you went out, there was very little snow, and so... It's very hard for them to try to blend in with the environment to avoid predators. And then you, of course, have the, um, you know, if that happens and, and the rock ptarmigan disappears, that has an effect on the garfalcon population as well. So, yeah, it, it, it's quite a, a bleak picture, despite all of the sort of 
scientific models that they're trying to use and the methods that that um, they're trying to use to preserve the population. So, yeah, that was quite notable. I mean, yes, yeah, sadly, um, climate change will not only <laughs> affect Iceland's glaciers, but also the wildlife. And uh, I mean, um, they're also prey of the Arctic fox. So it will be, it remains to be seen what, what for example, happens to them and if they will have enough prey in the future to, to survive. Um, so that's one point where I found it a little bit questionable to continue the hunt. I mean, I get it if it's only about 50,000 birds. He said like 5,000 hunters, they each have maybe like 10, 10 birds per year. It's maybe depending on the population number of said year, not too much. But uh, if you already know they're not going to be here for more than 50 years, why would you continue the hunt instead of just stopping it? already and seeing what we can do but i also get the mindset of i mean if it's happening either way like <laughs> what are we gonna do let's just continue have our fun while while it lasts and then we just deal with the consequence after yeah that was also i uh, wrote uh, an article about salmon farming and open net pens and that was a um, sort of huge argument against salmon farming and open net pens was that you already have these sort of major um, effects from climate change uh, causing this sort of dwindling of the population of the wild salmon and and why would you sort of add this controversial practice on top of that um, so yeah there may be some some through line there with the ptarmigan as well um, and then I, I also just wanted to ask you about the writing uh, I really like the opening to the piece and the ending as well um, how how was how was writing this and and sort of just crafting a narrative from it? Did it take a long time and did you enjoy it? Thank you. Um, I did really enjoy, especially just writing about the hunt and just kind of drawing in kind of poetic beginning and like just actually like it sounds a bit made up that the gear falcon was flying there, but it was actually there, <laughs> and I did not recognize it, but our photographer Golly did. I was like, what was this really a gear falcon? Because I've never seen one um, outside. So it was, I don't know, it was just kind of like a poetic, just everything fit on that day. Yeah, it was a really perfect, almost too good to be true ending. That <laughs> exactly. The falcon so, would be headed yeah. back that way and, and hoping to, to be more fortunate in his hunt yeah. than you guys were. So then, the, yeah, the gear falcon made it quite easy for me <laughs> to draft the ending. Um, it was, I mean, it is my first uh, feature article for Iceland Review. Um, and I have actually never crafted an article from three whole interviews. So that was a bit of a challenge, um, especially because, I mean, you don't want to go too deep into statistics and the models because then it's also too kind of abstract. So that was a bit of a challenge. Um, but... Yeah, it was it was really really fun and fulfilling to to finish it <laughs> in the end and um, yeah make it work. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've uh, all of us on the team have spoken at length about it, about this how how uh, what 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 a privilege it is to be able to craft these longer articles that um, you don't necessarily see in other Icelandic media. You have a sort of a panel of experts and and you're trying to weave a narrative into statistics as well. So. Um, yeah, just uh, thanks for reading the article and, and thanks for the chat. Thank you for listening. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review. 
the oldest and longest-running English publication in Iceland since 1963. We're covering community, culture and nature. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review online. <laughs>